0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast brought to you by Ceres. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for these programs about developments in this fast growing industry. The total derivative notional outstanding for U.S. banks is close to $200 trillion, and the top five largest banks control 95% of this systemically important market. However, to date, the climate risk implications of this market have been unexplored. My guests today are experts in climate risk management for financial institutions and the co-authors of a first-of-its-kind report on derivatives and climate risk. Jim Scott is Senior Advisor for Financial Institutions Engagement at Ceres Accelerator for Capital Markets, and Blair Bateson is Director at Series Company Network. But before we start, I want to say a few words about our sponsor. I'm thrilled to talk about the important work Ceres is doing. Ceres is a nonprofit organization working with the most influential capital market leaders to solve the world's greatest sustainability challenges. Through their powerful networks and global collaborations of investors, companies, and nonprofits, Ceres drives action and inspires equitable market-based and policy solutions Throughout the economy. To learn more, go to series.org/podcast. That's c e r e s. dot org/podcast. At series, sustainability is the bottom line. Jim and Blair, welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. And our first question is for both of you, uh, Blair. I'm going to ask that you answer first, and then Jim, you can come in right after Blair is finished. The question is How does the use of derivatives contribute to real economy greenhouse gas emissions? Blair?
1: Uh, absolutely. The, for, the short answer is that it does a lot. Um, and thank you very much for having us uh, today. Um, I used to work for an oil and gas company before I worked for Ceres, and I built economic models that uh, pretty much decided whether or not we were going to go forward with new oil and gas projects. And so I got to see up close how derivatives influence that, Um, and they do in a number of ways. I think the first thing that they can do is help give certainty on oil price. Uh, We used to buy put options to set a minimum price for the oil that we're producing. Um, that would you know, basically shield us from the downside of, of a low oil price. We also operated in a lot of different countries. Um, the company was Canadian, but we were in places like Yemen and Nigeria that have very volatile currencies, and we had to pay contracts in, in those currencies. So we would use FX swaps to make sure that we were able to you know, convert our US dollar revenues from the oil we were selling into know the right currencies that we needed to pay uh with with a certain amount of certainty we weren't exposed to these fluctuating um fx rates and the same thing with interest rates uh i think a little bit more certainty there but we still you know use that to convert some floating rate debt into uh, a fixed rate that that just gave our economics a little bit more certainty uh when we were developing these projects so that's the kind of oil and gas company view, but Jim spent mm. his whole career in banking, so I think he can talk about it from the other side of the transaction.
0: Great, Jim, you're on.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and thanks again for having us. So, sure. very important question. So, thank you for asking. It really all boils down to the real world impact in the end. So, let's spend a few more minutes on this. So, a recent Deloitte report estimates the cost of climate inaction at 178 trillion dollars over the next 50 years. So significant amount of money so how do derivatives factor into potential real world inaction well in addition to Blair's excellent example which I agree with banks also provide their energy consumer borrowers with commodity derivatives that provide for the actual delivery of physical oil and gas to that consumer client okay in this case I think the real economy impact is very clear as here banks are literally using derivatives, to fuel the industrial processes that directly lead to higher greenhouse gas emissions. But there are other types of derivatives, such as credit and equity derivatives, where banks allow investors to invest in and leverage positions in stocks and bonds that they don't actually own, but can synthetically own via a derivative. Many of these stocks and bonds having been issued by high-emitting corporate issuers So, in this case, derivatives effectively provide funding through the bank intermediary using a derivative to these high emitting corporations. And last but not least, Blair touched on this the most common, the most loved type of derivative, interest rates, which represents approximately 70% of the outstanding 200 trillion you mentioned earlier. These are regularly used by banks to de risk their corporate financing packages. So in these cases, it's likely that the loan financing to these high emitters wouldn't be happening, or at least would only happen at a much higher cost or a smaller size. So here too, there is a clear real economy impact from the use of bank-provided derivatives. Back to you, Paul.
0: So if I can just uh, ask a question for clarification, and either of you can answer or both, in a highly volatile interest rate market like we're experiencing today, I think what I hear you saying is that derivatives can actually be used to hedge risk by the issuer, as well as by the company that, um, I'm sorry, the banking system that is issuing bonds uh, for those companies. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to go ahead and answer that. Yes. Yes, derivatives are de-risking tools. They're risk transfer tools. So in this case, both the bank and the issuer are taking the risk out of the system. Hmm. And so yes, risk reducing very much in that way.
0: Great. Okay, Blair, how is climate risk currently being reflected in market prices of assets?
1: Yeah, so Ceres and our partners have done a lot of work on this, and the short answer is it's really not. if, if it's being reflected at all, it's being reflected at a much lower level than where it should be. And there's a lot of evidence for this. Um, you know, Our partners at PRI, uh, which is a European organization that has studied this, and also the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is an organization of central banks uh, that are working together on climate, have both come out with statements saying, climate risk is not priced into the market. This is effectively a market failure. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, a lot of it to do with data availability, a lot of it to do with a lack of analytical um heft at a lot of organizations on this topic. And to the extent that it is being reflected, I think it's really important to point out that it's being reflected in a kind of broad-based way. I think we are starting to see some organizations apply a little bit of a risk premium, you might say, Um, but they're applying it to, you know, at the sector-wide basis. If you look at some bank disclosures on climate, it's kind of like, all right, here's the climate risk rating we assign to this sector, oil and gas, this sector, electric power. Mm. Um, And it's not discriminating between companies in those sectors, much less individual assets, which is where we think it needs to go because you know, if you're looking at Exxon, a company that's basically done very little to um, move away from the highest emitting uh, products that it produces and towards you know more sustainable products. And then you look at a, another oil and gas company like uh, Shell or BP that has taken much more action, you wouldn't want to apply the same climate risk to those two companies uh, you would want to differentiate. And I think that company by company, or even asset by asset differentiation is not happening. And so that means that there's kind of a lowest common denominator effect where there's this maybe small climate risk premium being added, but it's really not reflecting the total amount of risk that's, that's out there in the market.
0: Okay, so that leads perfectly into the next question, which Jim is going to take for us, and and it's about uh, scope three emissions. Uh, There's a lot of dialogue right now, uh, not only in the banking sector, but across the entire economy on the scope one, two, and three emissions that all corporations are going to have to start reporting on, according to the SEC. So, Jim, why is it important for banks To report their scope three emissions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great question. Let me answer that question. Start off with a super interesting statistic. Sure. So of the of the three scopes in the carbon accounting framework, and I'll talk about this at a high level because it gets excruciatingly detailed. (laughs) That's why
0: most people don't (laughs) want to hear about it.
2: (laughs) But it's it. Listen, it's important. It's important. So so scopes one, two, and three, as you mentioned. Scope Mm -hmm. three is by far. The most important for banks to measure and disclose why ghg emissions associated with bank lending so scope three can be more than 700 times higher than a financial institution's direct emissions i.e their scopes one and two so scope three for banks is where the action is at scope three is so important for the financial sector that investors regulators other stakeholders have given these emissions a specific name. They actually call them financed emissions. Okay. So named because they refer to the financing from banks that directly lead to these real economy emissions. So again, financed emissions. Now, Ceres has written two reports on the subject of finance emissions from bank lending activity with some very important conclusions. The first report was released in 2020 found that more than 50% of US syndicated bank lending or around 500 billion is exposed to climate related transition risk which mm-hmm. is the economic and financial risks arising from changes to policy regulation and or technology as society transitions to a net zero economy okay we we wrote a second report released in 2021 which found that physical risk from climate change is also, not surprisingly, a big deal. Specifically, if you look at the value at risk, or VAR, from physical risk factors in the loan book of the big U.S. banks, you'll find an additional $250 billion in exposure, which is around 10% of the loan book's value. Now, breaking news, by the end of this month, uh, we'll be releasing our third report in this series, written by Blair and I, which is a first-of-its-kind report focusing on bank-provided derivatives. And as alluded to earlier in our conversation, this is an underexplored type of bank finance emission that contributes to real-economy GHG emissions, and the exposure of banks here is material. So for comparison purposes, the credit exposure from bank-syndicated loan portfolios is approximately $2 trillion. And the credit exposure generated by derivatives for the top twenty-five largest U.S. banks is an additional fifty percent, or another one trillion, another. on top of that.
0: Mm-hmm. The question that comes up for me, then, as a, a finance person and someone who is focused on uh, the capital markets being, uh, you know, facilitated on, on a you know a, a sufficient basis, is what other types of emissions are we dealing with here? I mean, I know you've talked about finance, but there's another type of emissions, and that is facilitated emissions. And first of all, let me say that as soon as your new report comes out, we want to attach it to your program within the podcast channel so that it's available to all of our listeners. But Jim, please tell our listeners what facilitated emissions are.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is an important detail, so I appreciate you asking that. So generally speaking, when investors, regulators, et cetera, talk about financed emissions, as we just discussed, they're talking about the financing that financial institutions provide companies that then allow these borrowers to emit greenhouse gases. So here the financial institution activity that we're talking about is mostly lending, either through a loan product or through the investing in a bond, for example. Now, what is the essence of why something is a financed admission? Well, series we believe that a more comprehensive definition of financed admissions is needed on this. And in our upcoming report, which again is coming out next week, we add to the body of knowledge on the subject by providing a more robust definition than what's currently out there. Specifically, we put forth that all financed admissions have the following things in common the financial institution acts as principal, they use their own capital, and they retain credit risk. And of course, loans, bonds, and derivatives all fit that description. Now, to your point, banks also provide companies with other very useful services, typically via the investment banking department, such as equity and bond underwriting, M&A advisory services, et cetera. Most market participants refer to the emissions arising or facilitated from this activity as facilitated emissions in that the bank here is acting as a broker of sorts, bringing investors and issuers together or issuers and issuers together in the case of MA. Unlike with financed emission in this type of activity, number one, the bank acts as an agent, not as a principal does not use its own capital and does not retain credit risk. The value that the bank provides with facilitated emissions is really the provision of a highly skilled and unique professional service. And important to note, since they have less skin in the game with this type of activity, they also have less ability to influence behavior change. Now, both types of emissions are important or or at least useful to measure and disclose. But as our report will make clear in the hierarchy of priorities we would suggest that banks focus on understanding their total financed emissions which include derivatives first because they have more relationship influence here and thus can leverage this relationship to reduce not only their own climate risk but also they can help their borrowers transition their business models to be more sustainable so win for the bank, win for the borrower, and win for the systemic integrity of our financial system. Back you know, to Jim, you Paul.
0: Yeah, that's, that all makes a, a, a lot of common sense because what I've been saying to people for 20 years is that uh, sustainable finance is all about collaboration. And what you've described just now is an excellent example uh, uh, of how banks and uh, other companies throughout sectors of the economy can collaborate for the benefit of all. Now, Blair, we have one more question to take before uh, uh, we we sign off today, and I'd, I'd like you to tell our audience, what do we recommend banks do with respect to derivatives and climate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, the report that we're releasing has six recommendations for banks. And uh, the first one is the same recommendation we've made in each of our two previous reports, just applied to derivatives. We want banks to crunch the numbers on this. We want them to uh, analyze and disclose uh, their overall climate risk and opportunity that they see related to their derivatives book, just like they should for their loan book and just like they should for uh, their physical risks, so the risks that they might face from extreme weather. Um, The second thing that we want banks to do is update the way that they're calculating default probabilities that leads to... Um, how they're pricing derivatives. Ultimately, Uh, we want, as I was mentioning, to differentiate companies from each other based on the amount of climate risk that they have. And uh, banks do this for derivatives through a mechanism called a credit valuation adjustment, CVA. So we want them to update those CVA calculations to include climate risk factors. The third item is uh, regulatory in nature. There's you know, a lot of regulation that's, that's been put in place since the 2008 financial crisis that relates to derivatives. And uh, I think a lot of that has been quite effective at reducing the probability of a systemic shock related to derivatives. But we still see the opportunity for derivatives to contribute to potentially a future climate shock that might start elsewhere in the economy. So we want banks to act advocate for smart regulations, not onerous burdens regulations, but smart regulations and policy actions in support of climate risk management in their derivatives books. Uh, the fourth recommendation is engage with borrowers. Um, they're already doing this for lending, so if you're talking to your clients about lending, why not talk to them about derivatives as well? Here's how we can help you build up a sustainable business. Um, here's how we could maybe help you with a managed phase out of a high-emitting asset, um, just you know, talk to the companies you're working with and uh, and bring this topic up. Uh, the fifth one is account for derivatives in financed emissions. Jim already covered that uh, very well. And the last one is include derivatives in climate target. So most banks have set a 2050 commitment uh, in terms of reducing financed emissions. At least the largest banks that we're talking about here. And uh, and many have set twenty thirty targets as well. So we would like those to be updated uh, to include the derivatives book because, you know, it doesn't make sense for a bank to, you know, change its behavior with respect to lending and then leave its derivatives business untouched. I think, you know, we want to see consistency there from banks. So those are our six recommendations. I went through them pretty fast, but I think they make a lot of sense and uh, should be um, no brainers for all the banks that we work with.
0: Okay. Well, I know they're going to be brainers for some of our listeners. Yeah. So where where online can sustainable finance podcast listeners go to learn more about the work that you and Jim are doing at Ceres? And how can they contact you with questions about the topics that we've discussed in today's episode?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, all of our reports and all of our work pretty much can be found on series.org. So it definitely direct folks there um, to see the reports that we've been talking about, including the one that will be coming out next week. Right. And uh, you know, to contact me specifically, happy for folks to reach out on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm pretty easy to find Blair Bateson and uh, just message me and I'm, I'm happy to chat with anyone.
0: And thanks Blair for that information. And Jim, where can our listeners reach you?
2: This, the same as Blair I'm available on LinkedIn. Or you can send me an email directly at jscott, S-C-O-T-T, at series.org.
0: Great. Well, thanks again very much to Jim Scott, Senior Advisor for Financial Institutions Engagement at Series Accelerator for Capital Markets, and Blair Bateson, Director, Company Network at Series. And to our sponsor, the Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. The Ceres Accelerator is a center of excellence within Ceres that aims to transform the practices and policies that govern capital markets to reduce the worst financial impacts of the climate crisis. For more information, go to seriesorg Accelerator. That's C-E-R-E-S dot org Accelerator. And to our listeners, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast.